Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. As any listener of True Crime Fan Club knows, life can change in a split second. The decision to turn left, getting stuck in traffic, going back to the office at the end of the day. Sometimes all these things can unwittingly put you into the path of danger. Other times, the day is nothing out of the ordinary, and someone evil crosses paths with an innocent person going about their day. Innocent people are suddenly thrust into a world of fear, anticipating a death they know is coming. They just don't know when. This is the story we have today, about a loving nanny and house manager who was going about her day when her life collided with evil. Okay. Onto the show. On September 27, 2017, Jennifer Fulford, a nanny and house manager for Reed Berman in Winter Park, Florida, left her house in Alamonte Springs around 5.15 a.m. to head to work. This was the last time her husband, Robert Fulford, saw or spoke to Jennifer. Jennifer was later seen on a surveillance camera, leaving a dental office around 10.30 a.m., then again on camera around noon, arriving at the home where she worked at in Winter Park. After leaving the dentist, Jennifer left a voicemail on the phone of Janet Grimm, who was going to install artwork at the Berman home. Jennifer said she was on her way to the house and Janet could come over as scheduled. However, around 11.30 a.m., Jennifer called Janet again and sounded anxious. Jennifer told Janet she had received a call from the school and had to pick up the Berman child. She told Janet Grimm, quote, I have to go get him. Don't come over. Jennifer did not go to the school to pick up the child, and this was the last record of anyone having spoken to her. Her employer, Reed Berman, was contacted by his wife at approximately 4 o'clock p.m., stating that Jennifer had never picked up their son. Reed attempted to reach Jennifer by telephone, but it went immediately to voicemail. Reed picked up his child himself and returned to his home. Jennifer was not there, and Reed found her purse lying on the floor in the downstairs bathroom. Her wallet, keys, and tablet were not in her purse. He also discovered the seat was left up in the bathroom downstairs, which he found odd since he rarely used that bathroom. Jennifer's car, a 2015 gray Hyundai, was also missing. Jennifer had worked for the Berman family for six to seven years, so Reed found this behavior very strange. It was unlike her not to answer calls and definitely not like her to miss picking up their child. At 6.25 p.m., Reed contacted the Winter Park Emergency Communications Center to report Jennifer missing and possibly endangered. Officers conducted an area search for the nanny, with no luck. Around 8 o'clock p.m., Robert discovered an odd ATM withdrawal in the amount of $300 from their Wells Fargo joint account. Detective Sharon Wagoner requested and received camera footage from the ATM withdrawal, which showed a white male with eyeglasses and a ponytail. The male had a towel around his neck, blue tennis shoes, a white t-shirt, and a watch with a plaid band. 
This withdrawal occurred at 12.10 p.m. at 275 South New York Avenue in Winter Park, Florida. Robert was shown the footage and still images of the male, but did not recognize him. Approximately four hours later, another attempt was made at the same ATM by the same individual wearing different clothing. He was wearing a short-sleeved t-shirt with a logo, a long-sleeved open shirt or jacket, and a dark-colored cap with UCF on the front. He also had fresh scratches on his hands. This time, he was unable to withdraw additional cash because $300 is the maximum daily limit. While attempting to find Jennifer Fulford and her vehicle, a probation officer in Winter Park viewed the ATM footage and realized it was one of his probationers, Scott Nelson. Scott had been released from federal prison in May 2017 and had been meeting with Julio Dominguez, a federal probation officer, regularly since his release. While law enforcement provided this information, it was not made public. Scott Nelson, aged 49 in 2017, was originally from New England, the son of Lawrence and Joan Nelson of Newbury, Vermont and Concord, New Hampshire. Scott was arrested in 1994 for kidnapping and robbing his father. Prior to this, he had charges pending for criminal trespass, harassment, and violation of a domestic violence restraining order, stemming from an April 28th incident with an ex-girlfriend. According to Joan, Scott had been living in squalor the summer of 1994 and repeatedly asked his father for money, a tent, or if he could move in with them. His father adamantly refused. On May 24th of that year, Joan had given Scott $90 of the $100 she had in savings, and he went to Maine. In early July, he ran out of money, and that was when he started reaching out to his father. When his father repeatedly said no, Scott made another plan. On July 11th, Scott was at his father's house, waiting on him to return home. When Lawrence arrived, Scott pistol-whipped him, then forced him to go to the Wells River Savings Bank in Bradford, Vermont. Scott made his father withdraw $10,000 and told his father he would shoot everyone there if his father alerted anyone. Once his father had the money, Scott took him back to the house and using duct tape, bound him to a chair upstairs. Before he left, Scott destroyed the phone, then fled to Vermont in his father's car. The car was later recovered by the FBI in Plymouth, Massachusetts, based on information provided by Joan. Scott phoned her frequently, only staying on the phone for a few seconds, afraid of being tracked by a wiretap. Scott was arrested in Las Vegas on August 24, 1994. He was arrested on federal charges since he transported a stolen vehicle, stolen money, and firearms across state lines. He was also charged with possessing firearms while already a convicted felon. He was the first person charged with carjacking since the federal law had been enacted in October 1992. In May of 1995, a federal grand jury indicted Scott on two charges of a felon in possession of a firearm, carjacking, using a firearm to commit another violent crime, and interstate transportation of a stolen vehicle and stolen money. He was given 15 years in a federal penitentiary, plus three years of probation. The charges against him in Vermont were dropped in light of the federal charges. Scott had a quote, an apology to the community, published in the showcase, a small shopper paper in Woodville, New Hampshire, on September 5, 1995. In the apology, 
Scott said the incident was a family matter that obviously went out of control. He also urged parents to show love and kindness to their children. The Orange County State Attorney, James McKnight, said Scott's apology had nothing to do with the charges being dropped. On November 26, 2010, Scott was released from federal prison. He boarded a bus and went to Daytona, Florida. Less than two weeks later, on December 7th, Scott robbed a Wachovia bank in Daytona, Florida. He handed the teller a handwritten note, threatening to blow up and kill everyone if he did not get all the paper money. He also claimed to have a stun gun and a 45 caliber pistol in addition to the bomb. After he was handed the cash, he fled the bank, but only got as far as the parking lot before being captured. His bomb was examined closely and was discovered to be nothing more than a collection of trash, including a soda bottle, a tape recorder, and a small propane bottle. Scott pled guilty to robbery with a dangerous weapon on February 18, 2011. He was sentenced to seven and a half years in federal prison. He was released on this charge on May 15, 2017. He moved to the Orlando area and found employment with the assistance of his federal probation officer. Scott's boss allowed him to reside in the workplace as well. Scott and his probation officer, Julio Dominguez, met regularly, but apparently his probation officer was concerned about the living arrangements because according to Scott's testimony, Julio caused Scott's boss to fire him and throw him out, creating a homeless situation for Scott. Scott was bitter about this and explained it later in court. This was a situation on September 27, 2017, when Jennifer went missing. When Scott found himself homeless and starving on the streets of Winter Park, he decided he was going to rob someone. Unfortunately, he chose the house of Reed Berman. Around 11 a.m., Scott rang the doorbell at the Berman residence. When Jennifer answered the door, Scott forced his way inside. He had duct tape, zip ties, and a knife. Scott bound Jennifer's hands with zip ties and used duct tape to bind her feet. He then took the talp comforter off the bed in the master bedroom and wrapped Jennifer in it. He carried her to the car and placed her in the hatchback. After this, he drove almost to the Disney World area and found a deserted wooded area off Apoka Vineland Road where he planned on leaving Jennifer. During his testimony, he insisted he had not planned on killing Jennifer, but her death was his probation officer's fault. Whatever his actual plans were, he duct-taped her entire face, which caused suffocation. Scott also stabbed her seven times. Two of these times were superficial back wounds, and five were deep chest wounds. On September 28, 2017, Jennifer's car was recovered from the Colonial Town Publix at 1400 East Colonial Drive in Orlando. The next day, crime scene technician Ed Bigley worked on the vehicle to recover evidence. He recovered DNA swabs, a Blue Moon Belgian white beer bottle, a distinctive plaid men's watch band, a white towel, and a white T-shirt. The T-shirt, towel, and watch band all had what appeared to be bloodstains on them and also appeared to match what was in the initial video of Scott at Wells Fargo. A taupe comforter was also recovered from the hatchback area of the vehicle, which Reed said matched the one missing from his bed. Reed also said the beer bottle matched beers he had at his home. 
on September 30, 2017, with the assistance of an Orange County Aviation Unit. Jennifer's body was located in the heavily wooded area described earlier. It was confirmed she was dead and she was in an advanced state of decomposition. The knife used to kill her was found with her body and with her DNA on it. Scott was arrested the next day, October 1st, 2017, in a Jacksonville, Florida motel. He refused to cooperate with detectives for about a month, but then said he would give a confession for additional food and a bottom bunk. He did confess, and it was recorded, and he brought this up when he was testifying at his trial. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Okay, you guys, I'm here again to tell you about my favorite wine subscription service called Wink, spelled W-I-N-C. Wink makes it super easy to discover great wines, and the best part is they are shipped right to your door in a lovely, well-secured box. There's nothing like coming home to a box of delicious Wink wine selected just for you. It's truly the best day of your month, and it's the best day of my month. All you have to do is fill out Wink's palate profile quiz, and you'll get a ton of recommendations. Now, I'm a red wine drinker, so my palate profile is strictly towards red wines. And in this last box, and if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I got this new wine called Capuchon, which is a cutting yawn. It is so bold and so delicious. It was seriously one of my favorite picks. And I love that there's no membership fees. You can skip any month and you can cancel any time. Shipping is covered. And if you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you'll love. No questions asked. So if you want to join the club and discover great wine today, go to trywink.com slash truecrimefanclub and you'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash truecrimefanclub for $20 off. If you're anything like me, you've spent a lot of time trying to figure out different fitness routines. I would stick with it for a while and then I would drop it. The workouts were always a little boring for me and they didn't challenge me the way that I was hoping they would. I always thought that I had to go to the gym for personal training, but then I found Future. The sign up was crazy easy. You just download the app, put in your goals, which for me was just to establish a healthy routine of being active. It's my second week on it, and my trainer has kept me busy each day with different workouts. It's been truly incredible. I use everything I have at home, so it's tailored specifically to me. I don't know what it is, but being able to have my trainer coach me through the different workouts and then text me throughout the week after each workout or just during the day has really helped keep me accountable. Future will even send you a welcome kit that includes an Apple Watch if you don't have one for yourself. That's how they track the workouts in the app. So meet your fitness goals wherever you go. Literally, I'm going on vacation and my workout is being tailored to that. So Future is really great. Sign up for Future today at tryfuture.com slash TCFC and you'll get your first two weeks for just $1. That's tryfuture.com slash TCFC for two weeks for only $1. Tryfuture.com slash TCFC. I'm back again to tell you about Audible. It has truly been a lifesaver for me, especially the last week and then the week coming up. 
I have a ton of traveling to do this month, so I've been downloading audiobooks and podcasts to listen to during my commute, either via car or by plane. Now, remember, with Audible, you get one new credit every month to use on the content of your choice, and you get two Audible original credits. And you get access to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, which is pretty awesome. You can stay current on current events or read the gossip section like I do. If you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and then use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. To give Audible a try, go to audible.com slash tcfcp. That's audible.com slash tcfcp. Or text tcfcp to 500-500. In 2018, after being in jail for several months, Scott wrote Judge Keith White a letter. In the letter, he complained about the food in jail and slated he had already lost 40 pounds. He said he had requested more food and had been told he had high cholesterol. He also said because he was white, his request was being ignored. He told the judge he had provided information about unsolved armed robberies and said he would give up eight unsolved murders for which he had never been caught. The letter said the government wants him dead and his insane defense team wants to delay his right to a speedy trial. He asked the judge that their request be ignored. He did not want this right waived. Scott underwent psychiatric evaluation and was initially found incompetent to stand trial. There wasn't much information as to why he was found incompetent, But this diagnosis delayed his request for a speedy trial and gave the state a chance to bring in their own psychiatrist to examine Scott. When the trial began in June 2019, 41 jurors were selected as capital qualified since the charges qualified this case as eligible for the death penalty. They were narrowed down and the trial began. The trial and sentencing lasted approximately three weeks. Jury selection began on June 10, 2019, and a verdict was reached on June 28, 2019. During the trial, Scott testified on his own behalf. The defense only asked three questions about Julio Dominguez. They asked Scott who he was, how he was related to the case, and what was his importance to this case. Scott explained Julio was his probation officer and if he had not gotten Scott fired and caused him to lose his living arrangements, then Jennifer would be alive. He said that it was completely Julio Dominguez's fault that Jennifer was dead. The prosecutor began questioning Scott at this time and asked Scott a few questions about his background, such as where was he from. Prosecutor Burdick asked Scott, Did Mr. Dominguez kill Jennifer Fulford? Scott replied, No. She followed up with, who killed Jennifer Fulford? Scott Nelson replied, I did. Prosecutor Burdick asked him if he would like to explain why he felt that Julio was responsible for Jennifer's death. Scott simply said, yes. So the prosecutor prompted him, please do. Scott explained, I was employed in Winter Park for a painting company by an alleged Christian family who took it in their interest because I was such a dedicated hard worker. They allowed me to live at their employment as well. Prior to that, I had been homeless after being released from federal custody, thrown to the street, homeless with no money. I mean, that's how they do business. 
The prosecutor then asked Scott exactly what it was that Julio had done to him. Scott replied, He made it a point to create a situation with my employer slash landlord, which was one and the same, and he got me thrown out on the street after months of suffering on the streets of Orlando. Miss Burdick asked for clarification on this, thinking Julio had just told them he was on federal probation. Scott said he met all the qualifications he needed to on probation. He had a job, he had a place to live, and he was reporting into his probation officer. Julio seemed to take offense to that and used vulgar language to get him fired by asking Scott's employer, what are you, blank crazy for letting this man live here? And you're going to let him work here? Get him out of here. And that got me thrown out on the street the last Saturday, August 2018. Miss Burdick corrected him and said, 2017. And so Scott corrected himself. During his questioning, Miss Burdick asked him if he knew Reed Berman or Jennifer Fulford, and he said no, then explained she was just collateral damage. The prosecutor said that Scott just used Jennifer, someone unknown to him, and who had no relation to his probation officer to seek revenge. At this point, Scott said, May I make a suggestion? You're venturing into territory where simple yes and no answers will not work and attempting to manipulate me when I admitted to killing her. The judge then chastised Scott and said to only talk when he was replying to a question. Scott said it was random that he selected Winter Park. The prosecutor continued to question Scott as to why he chose that particular part of Winter Park to live while he was homeless. Scott replied, I have to be somewhere. What's wrong with being in the city where I work? The prosecutor started to say something about it again, and Scott said, I think the more we have Q&A here, the further and further we're getting from the reality of the matter. I, I, you're not getting to the real truth. You're getting some cited version of what you want. The prosecutor interjected, refusing to answer the question. Scott replied, I don't even know what you're asking. She told him she wanted to know when he put this part of Winter Park into his sights to exact his revenge against Tulio. Scott said the night before he murdered Jennifer. Scott stated his confession was a quid pro quo. Miss Burdick said no, he needed to answer the question, and then on redirect his attorney could clarify that. His attorney objected to directing the witness. It was sustained, and Scott told the prosecutor to give him the question again. Scott claimed he was planning a home invasion, and if anything happened, it was merely collateral damage. He wanted cash, and nothing else he would have to carry and try to sell, because that would be problematic. Scott saw Jennifer the night before and thought she could be his way into the Berman house. Scott finally got to work into his answer that his confession wasn't quite true. Miss Burdick said, So, it's all a sham? Scott said, It's not all a sham, but they didn't get the real deal because they didn't give me the real deal. He asked for a single cell or bottom bunk, but allegedly the detectives told him they didn't work like that. Scott disagreed and said the detectives kept filling his head with pipe dreams. Scott said the detectives were very manipulative and that's why there was no video of his interrogation. The prosecutor replied, as were you. The prosecutor went through the day of the crime again, saying that on September 26, 2017, Scott was on foot, 
He had his duct tape and zip ties and the knife. Scott interrupted her and wanted to know what that had to do with Julio. Scott said Julio was the reason he killed Jennifer, and that was the end of the story. If she had any more questions, ask his lawyers. The prosecutor said, Your Honor, can you redirect Mr. Nelson to answer all the questions, not just the ones his attorneys ask? The judge started speaking, but Scott said his memory was getting foggy. The judge then chewed him out and said, Mr. Nelson, don't speak when I speak. Do you understand, sir? Scott Nelson affirmed he understood. Scott said he did not have those items walking down the street on September 26, 2017, because it's not a good idea to walk down the street like Rambo. At this point in the questioning, Scott began using I can't remember for many of the questions, alternating between this and I don't recall, and telling the unvarnished truth. As Miss Burdick pulled out photographs for Scott to look at, he commented, You look stressed. She paused, then thanked him for his concern. She asked him if he took the comforter off the bed, and he said, Reed Berman slept in that bed a few nights and didn't even notice it was missing. Maybe he took it off the bed. Miss Burdick asked again, adding, Maybe you wrapped her in it so you didn't have to drag her kicking and screaming out of the house. Scott replied that he did not do it, adding, Maybe she did. Maybe she was cold. Miss Burdick asked him to repeat the last line, then said, On September 27th, how long have you lived in Florida? Scott then replied, I know she ended up cold. When asked if he had driven Jennifer's SUV, he denied it, then said he thought he had driven it, then said it was two years ago, so he couldn't remember it. When asked why he drove to the Disney area, he stated to dump her, but that he did not intend to kill her. Scott claimed to not remember driving her, or putting duct tape around her ankles, or even stabbing her, but then claimed he had been abused a lot in the last two years, and he had suffered a lot of brain injuries over the years. Miss Burdick asked if Jennifer looked terrified, and Scott replied, Well, I'm sure she wasn't happy. When he was asked if he had the knife the whole time, he asked how he was supposed to carry a person and a knife at the same time. Miss Burdick pointed out that he was clearly seen on surveillance videos and at the train station and 7-Eleven. He no longer had the UCF hat on. At that time, was he making a conscious effort to appear on as many cameras as possible? Was he taunting law enforcement or trying to give them clues as to where he was? Scott denied this, but then said he let them arrest him in Jacksonville on October 1st. Scott stated he had been starving to death in Winter Park and that prison was not much better. In all of his time in prisons, he said they terrorize and brutalize you. He called America's prison system a spectacular failure. Quote, they will spend 30000 per year per person to keep people in prison, but not give these individuals a dime to help them on the outside. He stated he had been beaten and had been chained to beds. He had cockroaches crawling all over his bed and had been beaten and raped several times. Over the last years, his cells had been flooded and he had been forced to wade through urine and feces. On June 28th, the state rested the case, and the jury only had to deliberate for four hours to determine he was guilty. Scott was found guilty of first-degree murder 
kidnapping, carjacking with a deadly weapon, and robbery with a gun or deadly weapon. Once the verdict was reached, then the sentencing phase of the trial began. Prior to sentencing, Scott Nelson stated he was a homicidal maniac and begged for the death penalty. Scott claimed he had been raped in prison and contracted hepatitis C because of this. On July 1st, one of the jurors for the trial had to be dismissed for discussing the case outside of the court. The juror claimed he did not know if he could vote for the death penalty for someone who was obviously disturbed. During the sentencing phase, one of Scott's brothers testified as to the abuse Scott suffered as a child. His brother James stated that their father was a perfectionist and had often hit all the children. He also recalled an incident when they were in a car when their father pulled over and began punching their mother, who was about seven months pregnant at the time with Scott. Conversely, James said it seemed as if Scott was their father's favorite and admitted that their father had even purchased Scott a recliner so they could watch baseball together. However, when Lawrence and Joan were divorced, the two rarely had contact. Scott's older brothers had moved out and Scott was left with his mother, who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. He was frequently the caregiver. At times, they were broke, left without heat, and had to burn furniture to stay warm. James recalled a time that Scott was on his bike and was hit by a car. Scott had to be taken to the hospital by ambulance, but was released the same day. Sentencing began winding down. On July 10th, two jurors were approached outside the courtroom by a man with a bloody hand, stating that Scott should fry. On July 11th, Scott was given life without parole. As is the case, the victim's family was able to provide insight into their loss and how this impacted them. Robert Fulford said that his wife was his best friend and amazing. He continued on, she often seemed to know what people needed even if they did not. When grocery shopping, she seemed to know everybody in the store. She took care of three households. She would buy what she needed and then would buy a sub sandwich for somebody outside who looked hungry to her. Her daughter Hannah said Jennifer was her best friend. She also said, I will live the rest of my life without having my biggest supporter to cheer me on and lift me up. She also lamented, my mom never got to see me turn 30 years old. She will never dance at my wedding. She won't be here for the birth of my children, and they will never know her vast love. However, Hannah also said of her mother, she loved in a way that made you feel like you were the only human being on the planet. Sadly, Jennifer Fulford was murdered the same day her granddaughter was born, a fact her son, Austin Geist, says is one of the greatest pains of all. Her body was found the same day Austin and his family left the hospital. Her friends described her as loving and selfless and a kind, charismatic woman who would start singing at the drop of a hat. Austin said of his mother, I know she is out there dancing and singing with a smile on her face and love in her heart. I promise you this, she is the one that will be remembered. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, 
facebook.com slash TCFC podcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. Research and writing provided by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Production and audio engineering provided by Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. And I'm your host, Lainey.